HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Jacqueline Rowell. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our fall season covers Gastronomica's newest issue, 23.3, now available online. This issue focuses on food in place. It tells stories of lost places, explores the interplay of food and locality, and considers the social dimensions of concrete spaces, such as the kitchen, the banquet hall, the factory, the winery, and the supermarket. Dan Bender joins us this week to talk about his new piece, From a Hailstorm, Vines, Wines, and Factories in the Alto Piemonte. Dan is Canada Research Chair in Food and Culture and a Professor of Food Studies at the University of Toronto. His latest book, The Food Adventurers, How Around the World Travel Changed the Way We Eat, is out this year, published by Reaction Books. Dan is a certified specialist in wine and a WSET diploma candidate. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Jackie. We actually get to do this face-to-face for the first time in podcast history for Gastronomica. Uh, well, thanks for being here. I'm really excited to talk about your new piece, um, creative nonfiction work. So the piece is set in, tell us where it's set. So it's set in the Alto Piemonte, which is a short drive north of the Italian city of Turin and a slightly longer drive from the well-known, better known wine regions of Barolo and Barbarasco. It's also, I might add, right at that very first ridge that'll lead to the Alps and where the plains, the the Po River Valley plains, meet the Alps. Thus a good place to make wine. And so you've told us a little bit about the landscape. What about, um, what are some of the main industries? So this is one of the fascinating things and it's actually jackie how i got interested in the wine region because i went there to taste wine not as a scholar just as a drinker and the i was struck at the landscape which was 
vineyards and factories. And many of the factories were abandoned. And it's a well-known region, probably better known, in fact, for its long-standing textile industry, increasingly disappearing from the hills. It's also known as a region that is uh, known for ceramics, as in bathroom and kitchen ceramics. And down in the River Valley, it's known for rice, rice growing. So rice, vines, toilets, and fashion. And what about the main grapes? What are some of the main grapes that you find there? So this is a potentially very long answer. I'll keep it short. Give so us a preview. Yes. There is a preview. And, and we will get a chance to try some of them. We have some of the bottles on the table between us here. The main, the best known grape of the area is the, the key grape of Piemonte itself, Nebbiolo. Though in the local language, the local dialect, it's not called Nebbiolo. It's called Spana. Though increasingly now in this era of wine globalization, they just call it Nebbiolo. But there's a whole range of others that just are so rare that they really just grow in that area, notably Croatina and Vespolina. Those are, and then there are a few others that are grown in the area, but are so rare that, that maybe just a, a, a few plants even remain. Now, you said you first landed there as a wine tourist, shall we say, right? Um, but you are also a historian of labor and, and then a historian of food more recently. So um, the piece that we're talking about today appears in our food phenomena section in Gastronomica as a work of creative nonfiction. What inspired this piece? Is it part of a bigger research project? Um, do you think it could be or might be in the future? What brought you um, to write this particular piece? So, so many things drew me to, to the region. A number of years ago, I went to the region looking to taste the wine and eat the local food, purely as a tourist, just on holiday. And realized it was really hard to find the vineyards. And the very first time I went there, I couldn't find the vineyards in the town of Gatinara, which is one of the main wine towns in the area. I simply couldn't find them. And only later did I realize that I couldn't find them because it's a really narrow winding road up to the wine hill. But the factories were everywhere and most of them were abandoned. So it, it felt like I needed to spend more time there and come back as a scholar. Um, I would say I also, on a personal level, just have a deep love of, of Nebbiolo wine. It's a hauntingly beautiful grape. And yeah, it is part of a larger project. And it's part of a larger project for me trying to connect the experience of taste, the realities of history, the idea that wine is something that involves not just high-end restaurants, well, part of it, but a great deal of work and livelihoods. And finally, that question of, of environment. I've always been struck, whether that was 
here in the Alto Piemonte or here in Canada where we are now, about an hour's drive and good traffic from our own wine region, about the attentiveness of small-scale winemakers to the impending climate catastrophe. I have more questions on that, but this, this might help get us there. I just wanted to share a quote from your piece. Um, you write, quote, wine is good for thinking ruins, end quote, on page eight. And then a couple pages later, ruins, you say, a yellowed wine label, a light fixture, a crumbling castle, a shredded vine leaf, are the physical and sensory manifestations of labor and environmental history. Um, can you tell us about what you mean by this and more about your interpretation of ruin or ruins? Uh, ruin as a thing, but also as a verb. How, what, what role does that play in this story? Yeah, I, I mean, on a scholarly level, ruins are things that anthropologists, environmentalists, historians, are thinking about and, and asking us to think about ruins in new ways. But in fact, I was drawn to it first and foremost because that was the language that people were using, rovine, the, the noun and, and the verb. They pointed them out to me when we walked through the vineyards. They pointed out that this was a ruin or they pointed to buildings that were ruined. You know, ruins are the things, there's a lot of ruins in Italy. And, and the ruins the tourists end up going to are, you know, the great Roman ruins and the detritus of grand civilizations. But ruins are also the old building, the abandoned factory. It is the destructive elements. You know, we often are taught to think of capitalism as something that builds. But the reality is capitalism is also something that, that destroys. It destroys a mountainside. It destroys a plant. It destroys a region. It leaves behind its destructive elements. So it's not that you build a factory. It's that you build a factory because it will be one day ruins. And, and I think people are very conscious of those ruins and they associate them with, with say, an, an abandoned downtown. But in fact, the ruins of capitalism are, are everywhere, including in, in a wine region, in the heart of, of a wine region, where some of those factories were abandoned for, for decades by now. And what do you do with a smokestack? That's an obvious question, nothing. But what do you do with a plant that used to be growing? What do you do with the terraces? that are now being overgrown, but are still clearly a place where people's work and livelihood depended upon the, the, the vines that were once growing there. Can you tell us more about how you witnessed ruins in, in the landscape um, as, or, um, as it connected specifically to the vineyards? Yeah. Um, maybe share some particular examples and then I want to follow up with the question about ruins in, in the tasting room, but, but specifically um, to start in with in the landscape. So, you know, it's interesting. Vines are a great way of thinking ruins with, they're also a great way of thinking about time. 
right? You know, the, the annual cycle of bud burst, of growing, of, of the raisin when the grapes change color, of ripening, and then dormancy. And in fact, they're also about long-term time. The vine grows, it, the lifespan of a vine is approximately the lifespan of a person and can certainly outlive a person. And so it's a good way of thinking about time, but it's also a good way of thinking about past and present and future as they collide. So the ruins were, in some places, it was looking out over what looked like a forest. And then when you got underneath the trees, underneath the canopy, you realize that those weren't hillsides. They were former terraces, things that used to be hillsides. But, and the land is still owned, but in many ways, because of the nature of how inheritance works, those parcels are so small as to be beyond the scope of productivity. So it was those kinds of ruins. It was also the ruins of walking through the forest and realizing that you could come across an old grapevine now growing amidst scrub brush and small trees. But it was also future ruination that was happening. One of the most tragic things for me was walking through otherwise green vineyards in the abnormal heat of climate changing northern Italy and coming across whole rows of vines that were being eaten alive by popilia, these iridescent invasive beetles that had arrived in that region because it's not very far from the Milan airport. So globalization bringing those future threats. So it's not just that we were looking at ruins of the past, we were looking at ruins in the process. And the beetles are not only one um, example that you chart in the course of this article too. We also have the example of the hailstorm. Can yeah. you tell us how that plays into um, kind of the bigger story that you're telling here? So anytime you talked to the winemakers there, whether they had long, long family roots in the region or whether they had recently arrived to tr to try and revive this tradition of winemaking. Everyone talked about the great hailstorm of 1905. That's a remarkable thing to think that, that a single storm still looms well over a century later in, in the popular minds of, of people there, that, that hailstorms, which are uniquely liable in that area you're more likely to have them in that area because of the topography they can ruin a livelihood in 30 seconds of of natural fury and so that 1905 storm that devastated the area and forced so many of the people there to look for other alternative forms of work notably in factories that were being built at that time that 1905 storm shaped the way people think about the current situation in which hailstorms have been devastating the area in increasing fury and increasing, um, well, frequency over the last few years. 
because of the because of climate change. So what happened in 1905 is shaping the way people are thinking about 2023, 2024, and 2025, 120 years later, right? Um, so it's that intersection of past and present creating this sense that they're making wine now in rather heroic ways, but they're not sure how long they're going to be able to make great wine there. And what kind of changes do you see happening um, to kind of move towards a more resilient wine industry um, in light of this um, changes have you seen happening or, or on the horizon? Um, or questions, even conversations. I would say it's conversations. I, I don't know that winemaking can be resilient when you have five, six hectares as your entire land holding, which is the case for many of the truly exciting growers there. The reality is, is that five or six hectares does not a resilient lifestyle make, particularly when any time it rains, there's that threat of hail. There's one winemaker said to me, 30 seconds, that's all it takes. And so is it resilient if temperatures are rising and you know, winemaking is a very subtle art. And in that way, I always think of winemaking as, as the canary in the, the climate changing coal mine. Because a few temperature, a few degrees more too, too high, the wine changes. Alcohol levels rise. You're not going to get the same what we would call phenolic ripeness. Um, the wines in 2023 are going to taste different than the wines we're drinking today of 2016. Um, we can taste the climate changing in our glass. So... There's a sense of winemaking for what it is now. These are not winemakers who are talking about great wine empires where they're going to be making hundreds of thousands of bottles that are going to be available around the world for generations to come. They're making wine small now. Small producers. Yeah. Very small producers are making. So drink it now. Age it now. Drink it now. Thank you, Dan. We're going to take a short break and we will be back in just a moment. Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jacqueline Rowell talking with Dan Bender about his new article, From a Hailstorm, Vines, Wines, and Factories in the Alto Piemonte, now available in Gastronomica issue 
0.3. So we talked about ruins um, in the landscape. The phenomena that you're writing about, specifically around ruins, how did it manifest in the tasting room? Can you tell us a story of what you encountered, tasted, and experienced? Um, and then we'll, we'll get to these two wines that, that we've poured out. Yes, so I've poured us two wines here, both in from some of the, the true finest producers. I'll introduce them in a moment. You know, the tasting experience for uh, many of our listeners will know what you do in a tasting room. They pour you a wine. They tell you its character. You swirl it. If you're like me, you probably spit it. And then they try and sell you the wine. <laughs> it's a very different experience in tasting in the Alto Piemonte. Partly because there's, there's just not a lot of tourists that go there. They don't have the high-end, fancy tasting rooms that you might see even down in, in Barolo. Instead, there is a, a demand, really, that you think also about the history whether it's an old bottle that is very, very carefully placed in front of you, or photographs of what the, what, um, the Alto Piemonte used to look like in the past, where it used to be covered with vines and now is largely reforested. The very, very small percentage today of uh, land under vine as compared to say a hundred years ago or right before that 1905 hailstorm. Sometimes it's an old bottle that you do get to taste or in one winery they placed a box of old labels in front of me. And I've been trained in WSET and diploma to taste as objectively as possible. You taste the wine in front of you. You taste its acidity, you taste its tannins, you taste its what the single wine is in front of you. You can't do that when there's a box of a hundred year old labels in front of you. Instead, you find yourself thinking about those wines, about the people who made them. And you realize that today's wine in today's temperatures and today's environment is in fact a, a sensory dialogue with the bottles that you might have had that are, and some of which are still in the cellars. So tell us about these two wines that you've poured out uh, today. And um, maybe we can describe the wines, but also if you can introduce the bottles and are they, tell us about them. Are they? Certainly. Well, let me tell you first of the, the two producers in your, your first glass over there, Jackie, you have um, a wine from Le Piane. Uh, the winemakers Le Piane, one of the best known, truly fine winemakers, this from the eastern part of the Alto Piemonte, from the Denominazione of Boca. Um, and this particular wine is called Mimo from 2018. And it is a combination of Nebbiolo, which many listeners, enophiles, will have tried. 70% of it is Nebbiolo, and the rest of it is grapes that they almost certainly will never have tried. And that's Croatina, 25%, and Vespolina, uh, 
we're going to take move about three inches from one glass to the other and about 30 kilometers from east of Boca over the Sesia River to the town of Lasona. And here we have Pietro Casina's bottling Pidrin. Um, and it is the, from the Denominazione of Lasona. And this one is 100% Nebbiolo. And this is 2016. Different climates. And are these wines available on the export market as well? So like most wines of from the Alto Piemonte, these are very small producers doing, each of them have under a dozen hectares, which is the size of a you know, sizable suburban land uh, household. Um, some are. Um, these are rare and hard to find. Go look for them because they're rare and they're really tasty. I want to try these in some different ways together. And I want to see if we can't together and then on the podcast orally try and reproduce some of that experience. So maybe what I can ask you to do, Jackie, is to try the first wine, first the Le Piane, and maybe even just look at the two wines together over your white piece of paper there and look at the difference in color. Get a sense if you look at the outer rim there, see a difference in color. The first one, I see a little bit more ruby. Yeah. The second one, I'm assuming, I mean, it's more aged. Yeah. Um, a little bit more garnet, brick yeah, garnet, red that's color. The word. Yeah. You want to take a quick sniff and putting you on the spot here? Not at all. <laughs> So for the first one, mm -hmm. I'm getting strawberry and vanilla and cassis. Yeah, kind of black fruit and some red fruit in there, right? What would you say? I would, I would absolutely say that. There's like uh, the characteristic notes of that you get from from Nebbiolo, like those dried roses a little leathery too i would yep. say it has a lot of depth yeah and take a sniff of that second one but remember that cassis see if you get it in that second one too jackie's leaning over sniffing here swirling sniffing i want to say much less cassis yeah more leather yeah. More, more subtle, for sure. And, and I think what you're smelling there is the characteristic, very different tastes of the land and why it is that it's only 30 kilometers apart, but a different denomination. So let's take a little taste of these two wines. Let's start with, uh, start in the east with the Boca, your wine number one. So we get the lovely silence that comes with swallowing. <laughs> the cassis comes through quite a bit on the palate. 
as yeah. well. And it's lovely. It's it's a nice wine. It's a beautiful wine and yeah. really different, I think, than a lot of Nebbiolos that you've tried. And what would you pair it with? I mean, one of the things that you talk about in the piece, right, is um, wine as food. Yeah. Right. As part of the meal. And wine is is absolutely food. It's it's really hard for me not to think of this wine and not to think of the people I ate with and the foods I've eaten there, the characteristic um and again, the, the foods that are, are grown there, like the, the rice from the valley that's made into a, all kinds of different varietals of rice, some of which are also disappearing. And I would think of eating like the, the, the red risotto that's made with, the red, with this red wine, or as I particularly love it, the frogs, the tiny little frogs that are caught in the later in the season down in the rice fields. As we taste our second wine, the Lasona there, I'm gonna let Jackie is gonna give it a taste. I'll talk about it while Jackie tastes it. And this wine is it's one of the one of the things that I'm trying to avoid to do is to compare it to Barolo and to let it be as it was. Lisona was at one point before Phylloxera, before the hailstorm, it was one of Italy's most prosperous wine regions. And it was, in fact, this was the wine. Lisona wine was served at one of the grand banquets celebrating the unification of Italy. What I'm trying to do, Jackie, as you're tasting, and you've had some experience wine tasting, and you know that your have had that you're supposed to look for certain things. What are the notes? What's the acidity level? What's the tannin and all those fun things. But here I am shooting a history lesson at you. Reflection, do you get a sense that you're trying to taste not just the wine in your glass, but the wine from the founding of Italy from when Lasona was in fact more important than Barolo? That's a great question, and it's not an easy one to um, to answer. But one of the one of the questions that comes to the to my mind as I'm tasting is about age, right? It's about telling a story of the soil through through what's in the glass, yeah, um, and and through the history of the place, right? But also um, a, a history of of environment of labor, as you say. Um, but also the narratives that come with that. And so can you tell me a little bit more about um, aging, right? Are these wines, they strike me as ready to drink. Um, mm -hmm. So wines age, and wines age in all kinds of fascinating ways. I mean, very obviously they age in oak. In, in this region, that's old oak. So you're not getting a lot of oaky flavors with this. Um, so wines age in the barrel and then they age in the bottle. So a wine from 2016 is not going to be the same when you're drinking it in 2023 as it might have been if you had tasted it in the barrel way back in 2016. So wines mark a certain moment in time. 
and they have a lifespan. They're alive in, in the bottle, which is part of why I, as a historian, find wine so fascinating. Mm -hmm. But they're also a moment in age, almost geological age, because they capture in the bottle something about what the climate was, the growing season mm -hmm. in 2016 or 2018, which are the two we have here. I just heard from a winemaker in Lasona just a few days ago that this is a really hot summer. Yields are low. The quality is good, but it's going to be a different bottle than different geological age as we enter the, this, this age of climate change. So in that sense, they're fossils in and of themselves. And we can talk about the bottle of wine and, and we can also talk about the tasting experience right of um uh the experience of going to the winery visiting um the vineyard talking to the winemakers um can you say more about the the what you're seeing on the ground in terms of the transformation of the industry and um the evolution of the tourism sector specifically around wine mm -hmm. and wines like the ones we're tasting today? So, you know, it's a lovely question, Jackie. And I think that there's a, a tendency in this area to try and a winemaker coming in, uh, sorry, a, a wine journalist might come in, a tourist development. Say, there's a renaissance of wine. And I'd push back on that. And, and I, you know, when I raise the word with um, renascimento, with, with winemakers and, they, they looked, they said, eh, no, it's not a renaissance. We've been making wine here for 200 years. And indeed, there's evidence of wine making that dates all the way back to the Romans and before. So it, it isn't a renaissance. It's a dialogue. And what I see is, in some ways, there's a recognition that this area is capable of quite extraordinary wines, right? And unique wines. But there's also a recognition that a lot of that land is not suitable for winemaking anymore. It's ruined. Not that it has been necessarily damaged environmentally by, by chemical spills or something like that, but because of how land has been owned, inherited, subdivided, that much of the land that's capable of making great wine can't be used for making great wine. And I often would, would say to somebody, well, why don't you buy more land? Say, well, you can't. Because by now, dozens of people own tiny little plots of land and they don't want to sell it. So it's, it's ripe, to make a pun, it's ripe for development, but it can't be developed. So there is a real sense, and even as there are some new vineyards, there is a recognition that, that they are making wines amidst the ruins. And there is, the very last night I spent there, Jackie, the, the, we visited a new winery and overlooked the hills, and we watched, it, it was... In, a new, in, sorry, a new winery that had opened recently or a new winery that you had not previously? So a new winery that, okay. that, in fact, it was an ancient winery, a very okay. old winery, one of the most best known wineries in Gatinara, right in the center of the region. And they had built a new winery building. 
right? And they, um, we walked to the very top, climbed to the top of the winery where you could see the whole region looking east to Boca, to where I could see a new winery being, a new, a new vineyard being cleared on the hills all the way to the west, to Lisona. And it was in the midst of a very, very hot, droughty summer. And there was finally what looked to be rain coming in over the hills. And there was lightning. And all we could talk about was hail. Is this a story that is unique to this particular region? Or do you, can you say more about how how it might be unfolding elsewhere? That's a very, very good question. I mean, historians are always interested in uniqueness, right? And, and it's hard for me not to, to think of the unique stories of individual people. The, the fellow whom, from Le Piane, Christophe makes very different wine than Pietro in, in La Sona here, both incredible winemakers with very different philosophies about making wine but a shared love of, of the region. So it's hard for me not to put a face to the name of these two bottles here. And, and hopefully that changes the way you taste it. And yeah, there's no question that, that the story in Lasona is different than in Boca. And it's different in, in the larger Alto Piemonte than in, in Barolo. But this interaction, the larger stories here about the relationship of winemakers and growers, not just to their crops, but to the individual plants. Remember, the plants live as long as the people do, which means they know each and every vine. When you have seven hectares, you know every vine, and you've grown up with them and lived with them. And that story is one that I think is, is not unique to the Alto Piemonte and helps us understand wine and its taste everywhere from the Alto Piemonte to France to here in Canada and beyond. Thank you, Dan. I have many more questions and, and we can continue to, to chat about them. Um, but for now, as we wrap up your next project, what are you working on now and, and where do you see, um, where do you see your next kind of story um, going with, with wine? So I've been working over the last few years working very hard you know you see that my house is filled with half consumed bottles of wine i've been studying for the wset diploma and i take my exams in may and that is my effort to understand the hard work of serving wine wine is about status but it's also about hard work thank you dan and listeners will be able to read the full piece in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, issue 23.3, now online. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us again next week and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes this season. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.